The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. The other thing that I want to do, because we haven't met in a while, is, is really do a broad review of what we've covered up to this point to set the stage for our time in the Passion Week. I hope you've been working on this. Uh, you can divide the life of Christ up first into 13 periods, but also into four groups that I think makes it really easy to keep in mind as a framework. Preview of who Christ is, of course, is from John 1, uh, telling us about the preexistence of Christ, uh, the early years of Jesus Christ, and then the, uh, I'm sorry, early years of John the Baptist, early years of Jesus Christ, the public ministry of John the Baptist, the end of John's ministry, and the beginning of Christ, you can, you know, just think about Christ's relationship to John the Baptist to remember those four in that second group. The third group really is about geography, right? It's the ministry of Christ in Galilee, the ministry of Christ around Galilee, the ministry, uh, the later Judean ministry of Christ, and then the ministry of Christ in and around Perea. And then finally, it's Passion Week, formal presentation of Christ to Israel, the resulting conflict, that's what we're starting today. Prophecies in preparation for the death of Christ. What would that be within Passion Week? What's the, uh, the major discourse that happens within Passion Week that's prophetic? Olivet Discourse, very good. So <clears throat> that's something that we're going to spend at least a couple of Sundays on. It's really the day of the Lord. It matches up nicely with what we're studying in Second Peter it's, a, it's really kind of a sketch, an outline of what's going to happen during the day of the Lord. The Apostle John is there for that discourse. He's the one that later writes the book of Revelation that really gives the full description of the day of the Lord. <clears throat> we have the death of Christ itself and then the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Remember, there's a 40-day a period after Christ uh, is resurrected and before he ascends where he's going around still teaching about the kingdom of God. We're into Acts 1 at that point. So that's the broad outline. I'm not going to ask you to recite these, but I think it's helpful to know the groups, and it's not that difficult to know the groups the way that they're organized. What we're looking at today, again, is the, <clears throat> the beginning of Passion Week and formal presentation of Christ to Israel and the resulting conflict. So here's our chart again, and I hope this has become uh, familiar to you at least to the point where you can think about, think through it as you're reading any section of the Gospels. Have the birth of Christ, uh, those early years. We have the uh, John introducing Christ and then the launch of his public ministry with his baptism. Um, he's baptized, remember, he's impelled to go out into the wilderness where he fasts for a period of 40 days and is tempted by Satan. He's victorious in that temptation, overcoming that temptation. Uh, he's filled with the Spirit, of course, when he's baptized. Then John the Baptist, who had been the forerunner for Christ, starts moving his disciples over to Christ himself. We call this first year the quiet year, but that's really in a relative manner of speaking, right? Because he's going to become so popular in his second year. He still do, does some things in the first year that uh, are very different and also... Well, for example, he does his first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and then he does a number of miracles back when he's back down in Judea. We're not told a lot about those individually. They're just kind of summarized in John's Gospel. But it is compared to the other two years, and especially compared to the second year, a relatively quiet year. Remember, he also, during that first year, is interviewed by the Pharisee Nicodemus. Nicodemus has seen some of the signs that Jesus did while he's in the area of Judea. And he says, you know, we believe you're sent from God. Nobody can do the things that you can do unless he's sent from God. There's that conversation. After that, he goes up through Samaria. Uh, he evangelizes the Samaritan woman and ends up evangelizing her vi village. And that really kind of closes out the first year down in Judea. <clears throat> One thing that I failed to mention that he did in the first year that had to arouse everybody's interest was what? What does he do very early on in his ministry after uh, his baptism and temptation in the wilderness? He, he cleanses the temple. Now, that's something that he's going to do again in Passion Week very early on. 
and you know, it's been three years past between the two events, so there's been plenty of time for the, the temple to become corrupt again and, and for him to have to do that. <clears throat> so he makes his way up into Galilee after being in Judea for that first year. Um, initially, the Galileans receive him quite favorably, and even when he goes to the synagogue he grew up in in Nazareth, at first they're, they're wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. But by the time he finished speaking in the synagogue, they're ready to throw him off a cliff. And that's interesting. I mean, it gives you a sense of the, how fickle people were. And you see that kind of same, same kind of thing in Passion Week as well, right? Because at the very beginning, you've got the triumphal entry, huge crowd just hailing Jesus as the King of Israel, as the Messiah. And then by the end of the week, at least some of that same crowd, uh, stirred up by the religious leaders, are calling for his death and crucifixion. During that second year, of course, his popularity is increasing. He's going around proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's doing these miracles of healing and casting out demons. Um, after, his, uh, after he's in Nazareth for that period of time and receives that reaction of whether <coughs> they're ready to kill him, he relocates to Capernaum, and that's his new home base. He starts to gather more disciples he also is running into conflict, even up in Galilee, with the religious leaders, and particularly with regard to the Sabbath. He eventually spends a whole night in prayer and then chooses 12 apostles. These are going to be, I mean, he's had more followers than that, but these are 12 people that are designated as his sent ones. And he's going to really invest in their lives and prepare them, both for ministry while he's still on the earth, but especially for ministry after he leaves. He chooses those 12. He delivers the Sermon on the Mount. And what is the essence of his message in the Sermon on the Mount? There's really one verse that summarizes what the theme of that sermon is. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now for us, that's relatively easy to see because we see the scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites, uh, we have our impression of them from the Gospels. For the people of that day, that was a shocking statement. I mean, for them, they felt like these people were the most religious people and their religious leaders. And for Christ to say, you, you've got to do more than what they've done. But a lot of what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount is correcting their misinterpretation of the law. And that's why he's always contrasting. You've heard that it was said this, but I say to you, and that statement in itself is one of great authority. I mean, he's really pointing to himself as the one who knows the law and is giving its true meaning. Well, obviously, over this period of time, the, the opposition by the religious leaders continues to increase, even to the point where after Jesus casts out a demon from one man, they say, well, he, he's casting out demons by the ruler of demons. And that, again, was a very shocking statement on their part, right? I mean, they couldn't be any further from the truth. God had sent his own son and had demonstrated his messianic credentials through all these works of power and through very authoritative teaching, and they're saying he's uh, in league with Satan. And that was the unpardonable sin. It was also the thing that prompted Christ at that point in his ministry, somewhere you know, two-thirds of the way through his second year, to turn to teaching in parables. It was a device intended to provide new truth about a new phase of the kingdom that hadn't been foreseen in the Old Testament, and also to hide that same truth from those that were opposing Christ. So he's going to continue to teach in parables, really, for the rest of his ministry, and we'll see that even in the Olivet Discourse when we get there. That brings us to the third year. Uh, and in the third year, Jesus is still ministering to the multitudes, but he has a different focus now. His focus is on the training of the 12 and really on bringing them to a full conviction of who he is as the king of Israel. Remember, early on, uh, they recognized him as that, even as in the very earliest parts of Jesus' ministry. But they're not going to have the, they have a deeper conviction about that as they've been with Christ now for over two years. And... <clears throat> Peter's the one who 
after Jesus asked the question, you know, who do people say that I am? And there's these different responses. And uh, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what Jesus had been leading them up to affirm in all that he had spent time with them. And it's only at that point, uh, two years of ministry already, that Jesus begins to tell them about his impending death and resurrection. And you'll remember, too, that they didn't really understand any of that, and they're not going to understand it fully until after it happens. Okay, also during this third year, he's... He starts moving out of just Judea and just Galilee and starts blanketing the country with his message. And we'll look at the map again in just a little bit. But you think about it, over a course of three years, Jesus is really uh, able to go over all of Israel, proclaiming the kingdom, uh, teaching that he is the Messiah. It's really quite incredible. But then it, as we get to the point where we are right now in our study, he makes his final trip to Jerusalem, and he's going to end up spending a week there before he ends up being crucified. So here's the map. Remember, he's born in Bethlehem, uh, and very early we this was part of our study. He's in Bethlehem. Why? How does he end up down there? Because of the census. Because of the census that required Joseph as the head of the family to go to his hometown to be counted, registered, and counted. Uh, it's also in God's providence the place that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. He's there. Yes. Wasn't Bethlehem the original city of David until David moved it to Jerusalem? Yes. So it was. It was David's city. It was called the city of David. So he's born there. Uh, after he's born, they take him to the temple to fulfill the requirements of a newborn baby, both for the baby and for the mother, and then they evidently go from there up to Jerusalem with the idea, and this is an inference, it's not explicit in the scripture, to pack up their belongings and move back down to Bethlehem because that's where they are when the, the Magi come. The Magi don't come on the day that he's born. You know? That's why at our house when we have the, uh, the nativity scene, we put the, the wise men way off in the distance because they're making their way there. So he's probably already a couple of years old by the time, or close to it, by the time the Magi come. And, you know, at that point, Herod figures out, because they come to him first, that there's this one called the King of the Jews. And it makes Herod mad because he considers himself as the King of the Jews. So he ends up uh, slaughtering the babies of Bethlehem. Probably, you know, not a huge number of children. It's a very small village, but any number would be bad enough for doing something like that. And... Before that happens, Jesus and his family go down to Egypt. They're there until Herod dies. They're told by God in a dream that it's safe for them to return. They come back into Israel. But as they get back into the land of Israel, they hear uh, that Archelaus is now ruling over the area that would include Bethlehem. He's no friend of theirs either. So they relocate back up to Nazareth. And remember, that's where Mary and Joseph had come from originally. And now they're, uh, they're going to raise their family there. As far as Jesus' public ministry, the first 12 months is down in the area of Judea. After the conclusion of that, he makes his way up through Samaria. That's where he meets the woman at the well and also evangelizes her, her village. He's ministering in Galilee for a period of about 14 months. And then he starts ministering in and around Galilee. Canaanite woman up in Tyre and Sidon. He heals the gathering demoniac over on the east side of the Jordan River in Decapolis. And then Caesarea Philippi is where he brings the disciples, really brings them away for a time of rest. And that's where they reach uh, the conclusion that he is the Christ. So then he's back down in Judea, uh, what we call the later Judea ministry of Christ. And that's where he teaches at the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, has a strong run-in with the religious leaders of Israel. From there, he goes back up to Samaria and into Perea. And then from Perea is where, uh, you know, he, go, he hears about Lazarus dying. He comes down to Bethany and raises him from the dead. And that's going to be a very significant event because we see when we get into Passion Week that a lot of the people were coming. They'd heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead, and they wanted to see him. 
uh, from Bethany, uh, the, the resurrection of Lazarus that Jesus performed really got him in hot water again with the authorities. Why? I mean, why would anybody be sad or be angry about somebody being raised from the dead? Because it would take the importance of them away from, from them and, put, and make Christ more important, and they were afraid that the Romans would, would then come over and take over all the, They would lose their authority in the Roman Empire. That's right. I mean, it really was... Uh, Jesus was growing in popularity at this point, and they were very much against him throughout his ministry, and this was another way that he was gaining in popularity with the people. So we're going to see that there's a decision not only to try to put Christ to death, but even to put Lazarus to death to get rid of the evidence. It's really quite incredible. So Jesus, after he does that, he leaves Bethany. He goes to Ephraim for a short period of time, now he starts this journey, again, up through Samaria, up into Galilee where he had spent, you know, close to two years in and around that area, and then back down towards Perea. Now, at this point, he's traveling with a pilgrim throng down to the Passover. So he comes down through Perea, and he comes back down to Bethany. Who lives in Bethany? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he stays with them during the Passover. Now keep in mind, Passover was one of the major feasts that all males were required and, and that a lot of the ladies came to too with their children. Uh, it's hard to know exactly how many people came to Jerusalem at Passover. I read this morning that uh, Josephus recorded one year where he said there were over 2 million people. That's hard to imagine. Uh, but in the, at a minimum, I would say hundreds of thousands coming down for this annual feast. And of course, Passover was an extremely significant feast for Israel because it celebrated God's deliverance for them from Egyptian bondage. So here's an outline, a map of the city. Now you see the city walls as they existed during Jesus' time. You see the temple complex. Uh, you see the Antonio Fortress, and I'll show you a, a, a rendering like a a model of Jerusalem that you can get a better picture of that. But that just gives you a feel for the city. Jesus is staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus out here in Bethany, a little under two miles away. And what he does, at least for the first several days of Passion Week, is journey into the city. Uh, he'll come into the temple complex. He'll teach. He'll heal. He'll do different things. And then he'll journey back out at night and stay with them. Now, that obviously changes as we get into Thursday and Passover because at that point he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane. But that's his regular pattern over the first four days. <clears throat> I don't know how well you can see that map up here, but just some other areas of interest. Uh, the Praetorium where Pilate pronounces judgment would be right here in the same area as the uh, Antonio Fortress. There's a dispute as to exactly where Christ was crucified, uh, and so you've got different locations. If you go to Israel today, they'll take you to these different locations of where it was possible. It's just hard to know. We do know it was outside the city, but other than that, it's hard to nail down. We have Herod's palace and the palace of Herod Antipas. We have uh, Caiaphas' house. We're going to see as we get into Passion Week that there were six stages to Jesus' trial, three before the Jewish authorities and three before the Romans. And Caiaphas' house was one of the places that they went to over the course of trying to convict him. You have the Hinnom Valley to the south of the city and the Kidron Valley to the east. The Mount of Olives over here uh, was on the other side of the Kidron Valley, and that's where Jesus delivers the Olivet Discourse from. Um, I think that's the main features of the city that I want to point out. Now, here's a model, and we've shown this several times during our study. I just wanted to let you see it again. This would be from the Mount of Olives looking over towards the temple complex. So you remember the point at which <clears throat> the disciples said to Jesus, look at these buildings. Isn't this a beautiful place? Herod had worked on this thing for 46 years. And what was Jesus' response? I'm telling you, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. And he launches into the Olivet Discourse at that point. So uh, it would be a, a very appropriate setting. If you, again, if you go to Israel today, and, and you've got to go if you have a chance, you can really look 
from this same perspective. Now, obviously, the temple is not there. There's a Muslim mosque that's there on that same piece of landscape. But we believe that there is going to be a temple rebuilt there one day. Uh, that would be according to Ezekiel and, and the book of Revelation. But you're looking from the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley over into the temple complex. Again, at Passover, this place would be swarming with people, huge numbers of people. And Jesus is coming up into that temple at different points during that final week. All right, so what I want to do now is give you an overview of the week itself. And this is where the chart that I handed out will be helpful. Uh, I'm just going to be summarizing what takes place on each day. And then we're going to talk about the first day, and that's all we'll do. My plan is just to do one day per Sunday. I think there's enough uh, material on each day for us to do that. We'll probably take several Sundays to do the Olivet Discourse because there is so much there. So he actually, and we'll look at this today too, and I didn't put this in the summary. He arrives in Bethany on a Sabbath, on a Saturday. And then on Sunday, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, he enters the city of Jerusalem. And he enters on a donkey, just as predicted by Zechariah. It says that all he did at that point really was to heal some blind and lame people that were in the temple and then return to Bethany. But that triumphal entry is, uh, you know, very significant because, remember, you've got people from all over the country that have come down for Passover, and they are hailing him as the Messiah, as the King of the Jews. He goes out Sunday evening, comes back in Monday morning. On his way into the city, he sees a fig tree, and he evidently steps away from the rest of the disciples. He goes to this fig tree. He knows it's not the, the time for figs, but he looks to see if there might be something left on there. And there's not. There's no fruit on the fig tree. What do you think that symbolizes? Israel. Israel. That's a common figure for Israel in the Old Testament. And the fact that there was no fruit on there uh, was very uh, significant and applicable at this point in time. Jesus curses the fig tree. And we're going to see that the next day when he's back, coming back through with his disciples, he comments on why the fig tree has withered up. It's on this Monday also that he cleanses the temple once again and ignores the request of some Greeks. Now, it's, it's unusual. This ignoring of the request of the Greeks is only included in John's gospel. And you, you wonder, you know, these Greeks come up and they approach his, Jesus' disciples and they say to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And they come and tell Jesus, and, and it's like Jesus completely ignores the request. He just starts launching off into the fact that his time to die had come. Now, think about that. Why, why would John include that if he doesn't even provide an answer to their request? Uh, and we'll talk about that when we get there. On Tuesday... Jesus answers the public charges and challenges of his enemies. A very difficult day for Jesus, not unlike the time that he was accused of casting out demons by the ruler of demons. But he ends up answering their charges, pronouncing judgment of, the judgment of God upon all those who reject him. And then later in that same day, Tuesday afternoon, he teaches his disciples about his second coming. He's already been hinting at that along the way. Keep in mind that they would have expected all the things that they knew about the coming of Messiah from the Old Testament. They thought Jesus was going to do it and do it at this first coming. And that's not happening. Not only is it not happening, Jesus is talking about dying. And they're really trying to figure out that out and square it up. But he gives them pretty significant detail about the events of the day of the Lord. And we'll spend a good bit of time on that. <clears throat> On Wednesday, we don't have, or at least what we think happens on Wednesday. Some of these we can nail down with more precision than others. We don't have a lot of activity recorded about what Jesus did, but we think that this is the day that Judas makes arrangements with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. Why would he need to do that even? I mean, don't the religious leaders, uh, they, they're seeing Jesus every day. He's coming into the temple. Why does, why does Judas have to betray him? Exactly. So 
they couldn't just arrest him when, when he's there amongst all the crowds because he's very popular at this point in time. Judas would know where Jesus was at night, and he's making arrangements with them so that they can come by night and arrest him. On Thursday, Jesus observes the Passover with his disciples uh, in a, a specially prepared upper, upper room. During the course of that time, uh, Judas leaves to betray him. They don't know that that's what he's doing, but they come to understand that later, and John obviously writes about that. After Jesus leaves, Jesus instructs the disciples on a number of topics, and these are recorded for us in John's Gospel in particular, in John 14 through 17. Remember what he talks about in John 14? All of this is really a preparation for how things are going to be after Jesus departs. In 14, he starts talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the fact that the helper must come. and uh, Unless he goes away, the helper can't come. In 15, he starts talking about his relationship with them as the vine and the branches. He's the vine, they're the branches. They have to abide in him to be able to do what he's calling them to do. We get more of the role of the Holy Spirit in John 16. And then in John 17, uh, a chapter is known as the high priestly prayer, where Jesus is not only praying for these 12, but also for others that will come to faith through uh, their witness. So after they're finished up in the upper room, uh, they leave together, they cross the Kidron Valley, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and, of course, the Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus has what I believe is a very genuine struggle. On the one hand, he knows this is the Father's will for him. He knows uh, that he's got to do it. And he's looking at the glory beyond the pain, not only the crucifixion itself, but separation from the Father. At the same time, he's asking, you know, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. So as they're there in the garden, uh, that's when Judas brings this huge multitude of people out there, the Romans, to arrest Jesus. And again, it was apart from the crowds. And over uh, the course of that time is when these six phases of the trial happened, three before the Jews and three before the Romans. The Jews even knew that it was wrong for them to do this at night. It was against their own law. So they have to wait until sunup to legitimize the verdict. After appearing before Pontius Pilate, Jesus is crucified between two criminals from 9 a.m. in the morning to 3 in the afternoon. Late in the afternoon, his body is removed from the cross and hastily placed in a uh, borrowed tomb. Of course, he's, he's there for all of Saturday, the Sabbath, and then Sunday, he's risen. He's there, or he's gone, when the, uh, the ladies come out to better prepare the body. So that's a very brief and very quick overview of the Passion Week as a whole. just want to give that to you for context. And what we'll be doing over the next several weeks is looking at the events on each one of these days. <coughs> so let's look now just at the events of Saturday and Sunday. First, with his arrival in Bethany. I'm in the wrong place here in my book. Okay, this is in John's Gospel, John 11, beginning in verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Again, it's a huge crowd. You've got to get there early to take care of purification rites. Uh, when it says up to Jerusalem, that's a, a topographical up. So even though they're up in Galilee, we think of up as going north. For them, anytime you went to Jerusalem, you went up because it was elevated above the rest of the land. Therefore, they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Why do you think they're saying that? Okay, fear that he's going to be killed. Fear even of uh, being associated with Jesus could bring arrest. 
most thought Jesus would not attend the feast, the command of the Jewish leaders in 1157, which says this, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So they know that the authorities are out to get them. Many of them have witnessed the conflicts that he's had, even up in Galilee, especially down in Jerusalem on the leader's home turf. And they're really wondering if Jesus is even going to show up. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, that would be the Sabbath before, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So assuming the Passover occurred on a Friday of this year, uh, Jesus arrived in Bethany on the previous Sabbath. Now we have Mary's anointing of Jesus for burial. You can see the different passages that speak of this. I'm going to continue reading in John's Gospel, but referring to the others at the same time. John chapter 12, verse 2 says, So they made him a supper there, that is, in Bethany, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now you read that and you think, ah, they're at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they're making supper for him. But if you compare the accounts, Matthew 26, 6 says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and Mark says the same thing. So they were actually not at Mary and Martha and Lazarus, even though they're the ones that prepared the supper for him. Just one of the things that you do when you look at a harmony of the Gospels, you see things that you won't see if you're looking at one, one Gospel. Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, John says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? If you look at the other gospel accounts, it wasn't just Judas that was saying that. It was the disciples as well. Uh, this was a very expensive perfume, but we, we come to realize, especially for Judas, maybe not for the others, that he, he wasn't really concerned about the poor people. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now, think about this. It doesn't seem that they suspected Judas during the time that these things were actually happening. And this was something that John came to realize later, or maybe even was a matter of special revelation. They came to recognize that he had not only uh, betrayed Jesus in the end, but also had been a thief along the way. And that's why he wanted that, that thing, that perfume sold and put in the money box so he could get part of it. Jesus therefore said, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, John doesn't mention it, but if you look at the other accounts here, we recognize that Mary, Mary was just doing what would normally be done for a guest in a home, washing their feet, anointing their head with oil. It was a service. But Jesus says she did more than she realized. Verse... But using that much or that costly... It would be different, that part. Normally it would just be a bowl of water. I don't think she realized that she was anointing him for death. And that's what he says. I think she was doing it because... You can sort of see where the disciples would be a little... Why did she do that? This, yeah. Absolutely, that's true. They should have because he taught them about it. But they had it, yeah. No, that's right. I'm not trying to diss them. I'm just saying it's... It's striking to me that, especially with regard to his crucifixion and resurrection, <laughs> that they didn't understand what he was saying. Kathleen. Well, she should have done it to every She only did it to him. Well, I think she did it. Yeah. But it was normally a, a servant more that would do that yeah. rather than... Well, she is, and I think she's just recognizing Jesus above everybody else. I mean, Jesus certainly doesn't condemn her for what she did. And in fact, here's what he says. She's done what she could. This is in Mark's gospel. She has anointed my body before, beforehand for the burial. Mm 
And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that also that also which this woman has done should be spoken of in memory of her. Now, this is something that we remember. It's recorded in three of the four gospel accounts. Um, and and Jesus is making the point that she she is doing something more than just, you know, washing my feet and cleansing and anointing my head. Yes, exactly. Okay. Again, I would argue that her intention only at this point, I, I don't think she understands, I don't think any of the Jesus followers understood the things that were going to happen to him until after the resurrection. Um, but Jesus commends her for it and, and says that he is, she is preparing him for burial. Now let's keep going in John's gospel, verse 9. <clears throat> the great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there. Again, they're in Bethany, but the Jews, when he says the Jews, he's talking about more than just religious leaders at this point. He's talking about all the people that have come down for Passover. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the word had gotten out that Jesus had done this. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So the raising of Lazarus, again, played a large part in the multitude that was coming out to Bethany to see both Christ and Lazarus, um, and his notoriety, and the fact that, as Andre said, this elevated Jesus in the eyes of the people, that's what brought them to a point, the religious leaders, to a point where they wanted to execute him as well. We don't have any records that they did that, but that's what they wanted to do. Can I ask a sure. So to do that, they needed a I'll show you where he is. He's, he's also going to be their witness. The witness that Judas is going to be their witness. To, in the Roman court of law, you know, like um, the, the Romans required certain things before they would execute someone. That's right. And so he he would be the witness because he's obviously not accepting the witness of the leaders. So we'll get into that when we get into the trials. What we'll find is that they're having trouble getting two people that agree on what Jesus' crime was. I don't think that was in play at this point with Judas uh, betraying Christ, but there, it does become an issue of having somebody agree to uh, what the charge is going to be or what his blaspheming was. Do you don't think he was going to actually witness against Jesus in the Roman no. Because he was that's what because we know that he was so upset by what he'd done that he hanged himself. That's right. But I think here all he's really trying and all he makes arrangements to do with the authorities is to bring them to Jesus at a time that they can arrest him without any opposition from the crowds. Let's continue then. Well, let me summarize what Matthew and Mark and Luke have to say that John doesn't talk about. He, he's going to mention something briefly in a minute. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the story of Jesus telling his disciples, go into this village, you're going to see a young colt tied up with his mother, uh, bring it to me. I have, a, I have a need of it. And if anybody asks you why you're doing this, tell them that the Lord has need. So they go and it happens just as Jesus predicted. And then uh, we continue in John's Gospel, verse 12 of, of chapter 12. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, Jesus himself has gone to great pains uh, to show that he is the Messiah, to fulfill Zechariah 9.9, 9, 
and uh, I think the I think the crowds recognize him as the Messiah, um, at least to, to some degree. But let me read a little bit more of, of 9-9 just to give you some more context there. Actually, let me read down to verse 15 of John, and then I'll come back and read more of Zechariah 9. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, so that's all that John has to say about that, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. That's Zechariah 9-9. Now, think about the contrast between that and if Jesus had come in on a war horse or a stallion. He had the crowds with him at this point, and he could have come in, <clears throat> hypothetically, and, and led a great revolt and tried to overthrow the Roman Empire. Maybe that's what some of the people wanted to happen, but that's not the way that Zechariah predicts it. Let me read now uh, Zechariah 9.9 in its context to to show you what else is to predicted of Jesus, something that isn't necessarily fulfilled at this point, but will be eventually. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's another name for the people of Israel. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a colt. I'm sorry, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, some people want to make great uh, play of the fact that some of the gospel writers only mention one animal, some mention two. It was two there. The mother donkey was just probably brought along to keep the colt uh, easy, uh, to keep it peaceful as it carried Jesus. Zechariah 9 goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations, he being the Messiah. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So awful lot there that wasn't accomplished on Jesus' first coming, but will be when he comes back. And if, there's even the mention of the blood of my covenant, uh, which is a reference to the fact that Jesus is going to shed his blood, and that, that blood is the basis of the new covenant. So according to John, there were three sources of this great multitude. Um, there were all the pilgrims that came down from Passover. A lot would have been from Galilee where Jesus had done most of his ministry, but really from all over the country. There was a crowd that came to Bethany first to see Lazarus and to see Jesus. And then there would have been a crowd coming out from Jerusalem as he's making his way into the city for the triumphal entry. And there would have been some overlap between the ones that were down in Jerusalem and the ones who had come down from Galilee. We've talked about this before. I mean, it wasn't wrong for them to think that their Messiah was going to end up overthrowing the nations that oppressed them. I mean, that's what Christ will do when he comes back. But that was all that they were thinking. They weren't really thinking about the spiritual requirements of being in the kingdom. And that's a lot of what Jesus was laying out in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and the fact that they weren't thinking spiritually and, and weren't thinking of repenting of their sin, uh, receiving him as their Lord, and at this point, really following the Mosaic law faithfully, uh, that brought Jesus great grief. I remember when we were talking about the fact that Jesus wept when he was at Lazarus' tomb, I think Willem asked the question, didn't Christ weep at another point? And this is the point where he does. Uh, let's keep reading. We'll get to that. <clears throat> So as they're doing these things during the triumphal entry, it says these things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified or after he was raised from the dead, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So again, if you look at the, the citation of Zechariah by John, he's writing that as he's writing his gospel. It doesn't mean that he necessarily understood that that's what was happening during the time that the events themselves were unfolding. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead 
were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So that's the, the people that were, well, yeah, that's the people that are coming from Bethany. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the, the world has gone after him. So again, that helps explain why they wanted to get rid of Lazarus is that Jesus is starting to have real influence even down here in Jerusalem. Uh, where the religious leader's own turf was. Now if we skip to, to uh, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 19 beginning in verse, uh, no, that's not right. Yes, it is. I'm sorry. Luke 19 beginning in verse 39, some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side. What's he making reference to there? Um, yes. He's anticipating destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's the same kind of thing that he is going to talk about later in the Olivet Discourse. But we also see that 70 AD is a harbinger of the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem that comes during the tribulation period. Uh, we'll see that more clearly when we get to Matthew 24 and 25. They'll surround you, they'll hem you in on every side, they will level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave you in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So again, uh, there's a very strong contrast. On the one hand, it seems at least that they're recognizing him as the Messiah, they're hailing him, laying down these palm branches in the road, but Jesus knows that it's not from the innermost parts of their being. He knows that they're only doing it for political motivation uh, and not from genuine repentance. And he predicts the destruction of this generation in 70 AD. All right, let's skip now to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 21, beginning in verse 10. When he had entered Jerusalem, let me see, make sure I got. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitude were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And the blind and the lame came in, came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So after this great triumphal entry, he comes into the temple, in the temple area, and starts healing. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple, so they were crying out not only on the road on the way in, but also even in the temple itself, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes hast thou prepared praise for thyself? That's a quotation from Psalm 8. And after looking, I'm sorry, and he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So the triumphal entry is obviously a huge deal. Once he gets into the temple, he heals some people, and then he, he leaves quietly, or relatively quietly. Um, next time we'll look at what he does on Tuesday that, or sorry on Monday the triumphal entry itself is on Sunday he arrives in Bethany on Saturday he has the triumphal entry on Sunday he goes back out to Bethany and will come back in the next day any other questions about what we've covered this morning I have a nagging question in Zechariah chapter 9 they Right. Um, what did they do the first time? How did they, do you know? What did they think the first time? How did they fit that into the king arriving to conquer the world? Well, I think they understood it after the resurrection. But, you, I mean, yeah, I don't know, but the, the only reason I'm hesitant to say what they understood at that point is, is what John himself says in verse 16. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. 
I don't know that they looked at it when it was happening to him. That's my point. Ah. I know a lot of them discounted the prophets um, in general, not necessarily what we call the prophets, but they called the prophets. Yeah, I don't know what their general attitude was. I mean, again, I think for us, it's very obvious, right? Because we're after the resurrection, we have uh, the perspective. That's right. We have this perspective of a later point in history. It's very easy for us to look back at the Old Testament prophets and say, well, that's an obvious fulfillment of what Zechariah said. Um, it's hard for me to know what their thoughts were about Zechariah 9 in particular. It seems, you know, that at least some people would recognize that. They would, they would know Zechariah 9, they would see what Jesus was doing, and they would put those two things together. So if we live, if we live back before everybody could have a copy of, of the Bible, we would be learning basically from our synagogue visits. That's right. That's what they did. So is it fair to think that there were some religious leaders that pondered this, but they were not allowed to really say much because the majority or the more ruling ones said, we're not talking about that. Not only are we not talking about it, but you could get... Yes, that's right. So, yeah, I think because later in the story we hear that a number of the religious leaders were believing in Jesus but they weren't confessing him for that very reason I think they were afraid that they could lose their position or be cast out of the synagogue so yes I think that's very likely think about this is only a statement about the twelve now think about each one of them I think they could have grown up being taught in the synagogues as young Jewish boys but they weren't the experts in the law that the scribes and the Pharisees were. So, you know, you got fishermen up in Galilee. And as you noted, uh, they don't all have copies of the scripture. They don't have the opportunity to read every day. And so, based on what John says in his gospel, it seems to me that they didn't come to recognize that it was a fulfillment until after the resurrection. And Jesus himself had to show how the Old Testament yep. showed that. That's right. And, um, well, the two on the road to Emmaus yeah, is what. Another, another, we'll give another instance where they used the Old Testament to show. I know Philip did Everything became clear to them after the resurrection. Everything obviously is clear to us. Remember, the, the Spirit hasn't come upon them the way it will at Pentecost either. So there's lots of reasons why they didn't understand um, I guess the hard thing for me is you know he's not only telling them that he's going to die but he's also going to rise again and that would have been something that gave them great hope or should have but they don't seem to understand that either and are even wondering after he dies if that's really going to come to pass but again after the resurrection everything becomes clear it's hard for us to understand why they didn't understand but <clears throat> we have to look back at the fact that they only had the Old Testament we had the New Testament which makes everything obvious to us right they did not have that that's now, right they should have known their Bible better but we could say that of ourselves as well for sure you know so um, they like you said they were fishermen and stuff like that so yes they had been to the synagogue they had probably learned certain things that's they right were not extremely well versed in it so they didn't put two and two together right away until after his resurrection that's right That's right. Didn't have the Holy Spirit in them, testifying to those things at that time right. to make it clear. To That's them. right. And many things they said were done to fulfill the scriptures. You know, um, you wonder what Saul, later Paul, would have thought with that verse in his mind from Zechariah, and he would have known about the triumphal entry. Yes. Yeah. To me, it's a fascinating question to think about. What you would. You'd have to assume that Paul was there for the feast and that he knew about Jesus because Jesus was coming down, teaching not only at the Passover but also at the Feast of Booths. Paul, as a good Pharisee, would have had to known about him. But we just don't have a lot of uh, information about what Paul knew uh, or what his thinking about Jesus. That's right. I mean, even though he was a Pharisee, he had 
Right. Well, because he didn't have the Holy Spirit. That's the big thing. Holy Spirit is really the one who enlightened everyone. That's right. After Jesus. Yeah. And, and again, it's very important to keep in mind that when we read these citations in the gospel accounts, these guys are writing after the events and after the Spirit has come upon them. They're writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, and that's when they're pointing out, hey, this fulfilled this from the Old Testament. presented as a fact, then, like election, and then you read something else in scripture that's presented as a fact, like a necessity to believe, you don't know how to add that up, but you're to believe both. And so a good Jew would believe it and believe it in Zechariah, even if they didn't understand it. Well, I don't disagree with that completely, but I just so think... that's how come they could go happily on until he actually did it, but that's why they would be confused and think that here he is coming in on a cult, but he's probably going to bring the kingdom in. And oh, for Hosanna, sure. Hosanna, Hosanna. The, the two go together somehow. Yeah. I mean, it only becomes clear that there's two distinct comings after he doesn't do what he what the Old Testament says he's going to do for the first one, you know, in the first one. Now, the disciples, as the audience of the Olivet Discourse, knew that. Uh, they knew what he had done already, and they knew that it was going to point, be a point later where he would come back and judge the nations. That's all part of the Olivet Discourse. But if you're just reading from the Old Testament, uh, you, don't, you don't have that impression, there's two distinct comings. Regarding prophecy, too, it's always easier when you're down the road a ways in history. I mean, we can look back and see the book of Daniel. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, it's prophecy to be sure, but when you're on the other side of it, you can see how it was fulfilled much easier. We are so blessed. We are. Yep. We live, in, in one sense, we live in a very difficult time. I'm sorry. I think this, the, the other point of significance, I think, is the humility that it demonstrates of him riding on that as opposed to a war horse. And it really, I mean, obviously Christ uh, had already demonstrated humility even by coming as a man in the first place and being willing to die for sins he didn't commit. But that's the association with the donkey. It was a beast of burden, and it was a... Uh, there was an association of humility with that animal. Seems like he's approachable too. Yeah. And I think he's demonstrated that throughout his ministry, but yeah, I think that confirms it when he makes that triumphal entry. I read that the cult, the cult, the C O L T, should not have allowed him to write. Well, I think. Yes, I think one of the gospel writers points it out that it was an unbroken cult. So, I mean, you could have something supernatural going on there, but I think that it also explained that the, the fact that the mother was with the cult helped calm the animal. Some say that they left the mother, and that was the real thing, that the cult went with them without the mom. I, no, I think Matthew's gospel says that they were both there, the, the cult and the donkey. Anything else? So next week will be part two, and it'll be a bunch of parts for this Passion Week, formal presentation of Christ to Israel and the resulting conflict. So if you want to, I would just review that chart because uh, I think that'll help you get the broad context of what we're looking at, and then we'll just work through it a day at a time. All right, let's have a word of prayer together and we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you for the time together this morning. We thank you uh, from about the instruction of the day of the Lord from Second Peter and um, this gospel account where we see Jesus coming into the city, uh, coming in knowing that what he's going to do, knowing obviously that he knows 
he's the king of Israel, but at the same time being grieved by the fact that the people don't fully understand what the nature of his kingdom is. And we thank you for Christ and his willingness to go through all he went through during that week especially and to pay the price of the sins of the world. Uh, we know that it's only by that means that we've been reconciled to you. And we pray that because we have been bought with a price and because we know that the day of the Lord is coming, that that will keep us on a straight path, that we'll walk in a manner worthy of our calling and walk in a way that pleases you and that fights against our sinful tendencies, uh, sin nature that we continue to do battle with. Lord, thank you for the time this morning. We thank you just for the spiritual refreshment of seeing fellow believers and encouragement that provides. Uh, go with us as we go through and to the different places that we go to during the week and help us to be a faithful witness for Christ by both word and deed. We pray in his name. Amen.